Get Cody's trade alerts and all of his latest positions on the Trading with Cody app for iPhone and Android and on tradingwithcody.com. I outlined a lot about how I pick stocks, how I trade, how I invest, top-down analysis, bottom-up analysis. I explain it all in today's Cody Underground podcast taken from Brian Bain's podcast, Brian Bain from Investor in the Family. Check it out. Right now, I want to go in and jump into a show with today's guest, who is Cody Willard. I would love for you to tell our listeners about a little bit about your investing philosophy, like your approach to investing in the markets. Sure. Um, I don't day trade. I don't try to game little short nuances in the markets or individual stocks on a day-to-day basis. Sometimes I will see a stock that's getting crushed in a single day or in a single week, and I will sneak in and even do a, try to do a short-term trade on it. But for the vast majority of my money that I put in the stock market, I'm doing what I call revolution investing, and that means I'm trying to find companies that are not just disrupting their industry, not just... Um, changing their industry but are truly revolutionizing their industry and more to the point the world itself so three of my biggest hits uh, have been Apple I bought in March 2003 darn near a dollar a share I have obviously um, you know I still own a, a Apple it's gotten to be my biggest position over the years Google I bought the day it came public Facebook I bought after it came public and dropped into the 20s. Those are three of my biggest hits. And obviously, I have losers too. Uh, it's, without a doubt, I've had stocks that have dropped 50%, 60%. I just actually sold Iconics, I-C-O-N. I had bought it at 25, and uh, they've got accounting questions, and the SEC is sniffing around them, and the stock <laughs> dropped in half, and I've sold out of that. So just to be clear, I do have losers, but the if you can find three or four or five six or seven even, Amberella, Facebook, Google, Apples that go up several hundred or several thousand percent for you over several years, everything else bounces out. You're going to have some stocks that don't go anywhere and some stocks that go down. But if you can just find a few that really have big gains over time, that's where the big money is. I always tell people that when you do anything with your money, whether you're day trading and doing flipping stocks or not, you need to be looking out over the next, say, 10,000 days of your life, say 30 years, 20 years, 30 years out, because that's what you're doing with this money. You're trying to put build assets for the long run here, whether you're day trading or not. And so I, 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 I think that most people will realize that buying and holding great companies is probably the easiest and best way to really make big money in the stock market over time, and I live that. Well, okay. Um, tell me about with that mindset. What is how, what does like portfolio management look like for you? You know, you've because if you've got obviously some losers, some that go even, and then some that you know are major home runs. Do you tend to allocate all positions fairly equally? And then obviously, as they rise and fall, that will change. But what does that look like? That's a great question, and there's no right answer to a lot of this type of stuff. This is more art than it is science in many ways. Um, 
some of my stocks, you know, Apple over the years, Google and Facebook, the companies that I ride and let run and that actually end up being several hundred or, you know, a 10-bagger or something for me, a, Apple's darn near a 100-bagger for me at this point, those positions get to be pretty darn big. And sure. that's okay. I, I'm comfortable allowing some of my positions to grow to even 10 or 15% of my portfolio. I do like to take profits along the way. I don't shy away from selling maybe one-tenth of Apple or uh, one-tenth of Google or even one-fifth of Amberella when it was near 120 and take some profits and trim down, reduce some of the direct exposure into individual names. But um, I th another point that it's important to remember when you're talking to anybody and about their investment approach and how they allocate their money is we're all different. My upward mobility has been pretty good in the last 20, 25 years since I left college and uh, I guess 20 years since I left college and been working on Wall Street. And so at any given point, I expect to make more money next year than I'll make in the stock market. Mm -hmm. I want my income to be driving my net worth while I'm right. at, in my 40s. When I'm in my 60s and 70s, that'll be a very different picture. But certainly, and when I was in my 20s, I had no stock exposure. I mean, I might have had two or three thousand, five or ten thousand dollars in a stock or something. But as I've built my own net worth and built up my assets, I still expect and try to make more money off of trading with Cody and being the chairman of Scudify and building and creating value in a career than I do buying and selling individual stocks and even investing there for the long run. That's a good word. What about, um, let's shift gears a little bit and, okay, let's talk about for when you're like researching and looking to make an investment, what, um, like, what does that process look like for you as far as Let's start with how do you typically identify a lead for a company that you think, hey, here's potential, and then then starting that due diligence process. Like, how do you usually sure. begin that? So, I I start with what's probably called top down analysis, where I'm looking at the economy and society overall, and the, and tech trends within society overall, and so. Um, a, a good example is in 2008-2009, as the iPhone was hitting and Android was being rolled out, I started looking at and writing about and betting big on the app revolution. And mm -hmm. I didn't want to call it the smartphone revolution or the tablet revolution. I called it the app revolution because it's it, it really facilitating the ability to build apps and and use apps on your smartphone and tablets. and um, and even today, wearables will be app-driven. You'll be dr using most of the wearable devices and Internet of Things that you that are the next phase of growth for the app revolution are still built upon the app revolution. So the point being is you're looking down sort of at that overall trend, and that's top-down. And so then once I've identified a trend like, say, the app revolution, or to the point today, the wearables revolution that I think ha is going to grow tenfold or a hundredfold and create an entirely new mm. industry, an entirely new marketplace, truly revolutionize the world. Um, then I go, all right, now I've got to do some bottom-up analysis. So I go mm. and find companies in that industry, and I look at 
how much balance at their balance sheets, make sure they're not levered up and that they have some flexibility. I don't like companies that have more debt than they do cash. I like to see a company that's got net cash on the balance sheet, subtracting out their long-term debt from their short-term investments, their long-term investments, and the actual cash they have. I do that. If they've got a lot of cash and not much debt or even better no debt at all then I start looking at the company itself how well is it positioned in that industry I might call the management most of the time before I buy a stock I've talked to at least some people inside the company it might just be the investor relations guy but with having done TV and having built a reputation and a brand name for myself over the years a lot of times I can actually get the CEO on the company or uh, you know a high up executive inside the company to get on the phone with me and talk about the stock and the company and how it's positioned. And after I do all that, if I like the stock, if I think it's cheap, if I think it's going to go, if I think it's going to grow itself fivefold or tenfold or 50-fold revenues over the next five or ten years and earnings even more so than that, then hey, I'm probably going to put that in the portfolio. And I typically start off with either a one-third of full-size position. And if a full-size position for you, say you've got a million dollars in the stock market or a hundred thousand dollars in the stock market, a full-size position should probably maybe be 3% or 5% or even up to 10% of your portfolio, depending on how diversified you want to be. But I don't ever buy that full position all at once. I like to slowly scale in and tranche in. So I'll buy one-third of a full position and then add one-fifth of the full position. And over several weeks or even months and or years, I'll end up building up that position to where I want it to be and uh, that way I sort of diversify myself across time and price as stocks fluctuate. Right. So when you're um, kind of like averaging into that position, it could there's not really a, a predetermined timing as far as, well, I buy a fifth one week, then I wait one month. It's more of a just kind of watching to see, you know, is this trending up or down and kind of looking for um, opportunities that way. Right. Well, and I don't necessarily care about the trends themselves for the stocks. Um, that would be the only thing I'd, I, I'd uh, take issue with and how you phrase that. Because, yes, again, it's more art than science. Right. I might buy one stock, put it in a one-third position, and it'll be two or three months later, and I still haven't added to it. Maybe the stock ran straight up 50% or something, and I just didn't want to chase it. Another right. time... Uh, the stock might drop 20 or 30%, and I'll go in immediately and build it up into a fuller size position. Um, and sometimes I will. A stock's up 50% from where I bought it, and I haven't gotten a chance to buy that second tranche, and I'll go in and add another one-third and pay up for it. There, uh, You've got to be flexible. You've got that. That's one of the most important things in investing and trading, too, is to be flexible and you certainly want to have discipline, and you want to have a playbook with rules that you've thought out that you... Th- think will help maximize the reward and minimize the risks over the next 10,000 days of your life but you've still got to be flexible within that and you don't want any you don't want to be dichotomy have a dichotomy or something that you have to do something this way every time and it's a set rule I, I think the markets tend to wipe people out and or punish people in general that have set rules right Okay, there's a couple things that you just talked about that I'd like to kind of follow a little bit. One of them is rewinding a little bit. You talked about you would contact investor relations at a company, and I think that's something that you know most of us that have been investing for a while and done any kind of research, you know, 
that investor relation link on every website for a company and you've gone there to find annual reports and presentations and stuff. But most of us probably haven't taken that step to actually contact investor relations. Do you have any um, like tips or thoughts as far as like, how does how do you normally approach that? Do you what does that situation look like for you? That's a great question because you're right. I don't know that the average Joe at home, you know, trading stocks and whether the guys that the average doctor or the average construction worker or the average um, entrepreneur at home that doesn't do trading and investing in public and had a TV show and written articles for USA Today and all the stuff that I've done over the last 20 years, um, that they're going to get a call back. Um, right. So in, in that sense, I mean, I've got a little bit of an edge, and I guess, but that's because I paid my dues and gotten to a point where I can get a call back. But I think just doing your due diligence, there are stocks that I buy. I bought one yesterday that I haven't even tried to reach the management yet. I just felt comfortable enough, and I know um, people who have invested in it and who are very successful investors, um, and I leaned on their homework a little bit in right. that sense. Um, but I do encourage, if you're going to buy a stock that you think you're going to own for the next two years, five years, ten years, to reach out to the IR guys, just send them an email and say, hey, I'm looking to invest in your company. I've got a couple of questions. And you probably will at least get an email back and you can start a dialogue and get to know the company a little bit. And the one thing that the one of the many things that the Internet revolution has created in our lives is it flipped the entire concept that it's they used to say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, you can email just darn near everybody or right. reach, reach out on Twitter or Facebook or something. You can find contact information or close to just about anyone or getting you close to just about anyone. So building a relationship, asking smart questions, and emailing two or three times, even if you don't get a response, will eventually open doors for you and you will get uh, some uh, traction with just about anybody, any company, any time. So don't be discouraged if you do reach out to a company you don't hear back the first times. I, to this day, I'm not afraid to email someone two, three, four, five times if I want an answer and I haven't gotten it. That's a good word. And so when you're contacting investor relations, are you? And I'm sure for every company, there's going to be different things you want to know. But is are you usually seeking? And it's maybe a both answer like specific um, answers to questions or is, is a big part of it too just kind of gauging the management and how they and like what their what their mindset is, is are, are both those usually a big part of what you're looking for that's a great question I don't know that I've got anything set that I'm looking for when I reach out to a company and I much prefer to get a CEO or an executive um, on the phone with me and talking about uh, the company and getting, I, I like to actually get to know the CEO a little bit and, it, you know, you meet some true visionaries that sure. you know, make your toes tingle when you're in the room with the guys and that's yeah. one that you'd want to buy and forget about. I, exactly. One of the most, another very important concept for traders and investors to remember is that you've got choices. You can build your own career and channel energy into things and trying to make money. Or when you give someone, a, when you invest in any company, when you buy any stock, you're betting that other people 
individual people are actually going to be doing the right thing, that they're going to be creating value, that profits will follow that value and them doing the right thing, and that you want to ride their coattails. So you are truly betting on other individual people when right. you buy a stock. So I'd like to know the, those individual people if possible. I used to know several executives inside of Apple. I bought Apple originally March 2003 when it was trading at less than cash per share on the balance sheet and everybody hated <laughs> Apple. Steve Jobs had come back but the company hadn't rolled out the iPod yet. The iTunes concept didn't exist and they were still selling those ugly orange bulky Macs to college kids. Right. <laughs> right. And that was their primary business but I used to, I got to know some of the people inside of Apple back then. You can imagine an individual investor, even a hedge fund investor, a small hedge fund like I was at the time, go trying to call Apple's right. investor relations <laughs> department today and being like, I'd like to talk to an executive. It's not going to happen. The company's right. worth a trillion dollars. They've got better sure. time, better things to be doing with their time and energy. But especially with a smaller cap company, and I do caution all retail investors, be very careful when you invest in small caps. Anything less than a billion dollar market cap, you've got higher risks of just things going wrong in general the company's not dominant obviously if it's that small that be careful when you're dealing with smaller caps but the flip side is those kinds of companies probably will get you returning your phone calls and you can actually get to know some of the people inside the companies like that right great response and that's that's much more in depth than I than I was even expecting which is awesome but I was hoping you would get into that idea of being able to gauge management things because one of the things for me when I'm looking to make an investment, and it's hard to do this well from quote unquote the outside, like many of us are. But I want to know, man, can I really trust these people? Like, I mean, how competent are they? Because, like you said, if they really are that kind of visionary leader, and they just you can sense that competence and that drive and stuff. Well, there's, and that'll I, I, fill in a lot of gaps for me right away. Brian, that's a two points I want to make there. Number one. Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. I have never talked to an executive inside of Facebook. It was already worth 50 or $40 billion or whatever it was when it was at $20 per share and I started buying it. But I had seen and read and felt comfortable with Mark Zuckerberg's vision and what a brilliant genius he probably is, even though I've never been in the same room with the guy, much less had a conversation with the guy. But I've owned Facebook without having met management because I am betting on Mark Zuckerberg creating value for shareholders and dominating the social world. And he also, by the way, I, I called it one of the greatest app companies ever. And if you notice today, four out of the top five most downloaded apps in history are owned by, yes, Facebook. And that wow. guy, Mark Zuckerberg, is the one who made all that happen. Well, he and the company, but his vision sure. made sure that they were buying WhatsApp and um, creating value through the app revolution. He was the guy who was talking about, we are a mobile first company back in 2009 and 2010. And then the other thing I want to hit on there is you do have to trust management and sometimes they lie. Sometimes they cheat. Right. Sometimes there is fraud. I owned one of the worst experiences I ever had as a hedge fund manager was I owned, I had, it was 2004, my second year, going into my second year, I launched in October 2002. So in early 2004, uh, I'd had a great 15 months 
running money. It made some investors some money and got a little bit of money myself off of the way the hedge fund arrangement is. You get to keep 20% of the profits at the end of the first year and at the end of the second year and at the end of every year. And so heading into my calendar, 2004, I owned every telecom stock on the planet because I thought they were wildly (laughs) cheap and been wildly oversold and that there was actually going to be a whole lot of investment in the internet infrastructure and communications infrastructure still about to happen. I had several stocks go up double, triple in the first 30 days, 60 days. By By March, I was up like 30 or 40 percent in my hedge fund. I could have just sold everything, coasted to the end of the year, and I would have had a nice paycheck to take home at the end of the year because I'm guaranteed 20 percent of those profits, 30 or 40 percent rally in the first 60 days of the year. It's a great setup. (laughs) And I did. I sold almost everything down, Brian, and almost got down to cash. And then all those stocks really crashed. They went down 50%, 60%. And I thought, I really am the smartest guy ever because I bought them early, I sold them at the top, and now I can sneak back in and start buying them again. So I went in and started buying all of my telecom stocks back. Nortel was my biggest position. And I come in one morning and Nortel has been suspended, halted. And the headlines are that Nortel, Lucent, and other giant telecom communications companies have been um, less than being truthful about the revenues and earnings they were generating. They were doing a lot of fake sales in and out to each other and to their customers. And long story short, Nortel eventually went bankrupt, and I Mm. was down 60% when the stock opened up two days later, finally. And every telecom stock that I had bought was down in sympathy with it, 20 or 30%. And my 30, 40% gains were uh, quickly minus 10% on the year. And so the point is, you've got to trust management, but you also got to be diligent and know that, hey, there there is fraud out there. And you are occasionally going to run into it as an investor. And that needs to be part of your playbook. You need to be able to handle it because it's going to happen. That is a good word of caution. Let's let's transition a little bit here too as well because I want to I want to talk a little bit about some you know what are some and you've already hinted at this a little bit or more than hinted but you know what are the, some of the big trends that you're watching out for um, regarding investment opportunity and then I've got some specific company questions about that um, sure once you once you launch off to begin with so um, I've recently can you can I write books about these trends and publish them as ebooks. Um, and you can get all of them for free at tradingwithcody.com. Come sign up on Trading with Cody, and we'll send you the every book I've written um, about even these topics. And so right now, I think three of the big ones that I'm looking at that I just published books on is wearables, robotics, and drones. I'd add Internet of Things in there, too, as a fourth one. But each of those is going to be much bigger over the next five to ten years. Wearables is probably the single biggest uh, marketplace that I see being created today. Think of it like this. There's going to be 1.5, more than 1.5 billion smartphones sold this year. Well, most of those, and, and that's up from about 50 million in 2008. So in seven right. years, we've gone from 50 million to 1.5 billion smartphones. Most right now we're going to have maybe 10 or 20 million wearable devices sold in 2015. 
But most kids, most teenagers, most college kids and young people love streaming their lives. They're going to be wearing wearable cameras. They're going to have new wearable devices. There's going to be wearable health things, not just Fitbit, but even little chips that you put on that literally embed in your skin that measure your blood levels, your um, any you know, measure all of your internals. That type of stuff is coming. Most there will probably most people under the age of forty will have at least one wearable device for every smartphone they own. The smartphone is the hub for the wearable devices. And so if you're talking to maybe one, maybe five, maybe even ten wearable devices for some people for every smartphone they own, mo most people don't have two smartphones, but you might have yeah. five wearable devices right. that do different things each. So you're talking about an industry that's going from 10 or 20 million units this year to going to maybe 3 billion or 5 billion or even 10 billion units in say 7 years from now. So I want to be in front of that huge revolution that's about to happen in the wearables revolution. Yeah, I and the <laughs> my favorite illustration for um kind of like the imagination that has to be behind how big a market like this can become is I remember back when I was in high school in the late, early, uh, I guess mid late nineties, and we had at the time, you know, our high school was really ahead of the curve because we had a computer lab with inter access to the internet at the time, which is a really big deal. And and I remember every now and then I'd get a pass from class and I'd go and sit down in front of the computer, and you know I'd open up a browser or something and I'd just stare at it. So I'm like, I have no idea what to do at this point because at that point the internet was. You still had to really have an idea what you're doing. Well, it wasn't and, super user-friendly. And that early, there wasn't nearly as many websites slash applications and uses for the Internet. You know, exactly. There wasn't, there wasn't video streaming, and there wasn't listening to music and all the things that we take for granted that we do over the Internet today. But back then, yeah, it was a dial-up type of speed probably, and even if it was faster, there weren't all the websites and podcasts and videos and YouTubes right. and Periscopes well, to use. And, and, anyway. and I would get on, and I'd stare at it, and I'd be like, big deal, right? And I think, you know, I remember when the iPhone first came out, and it really wasn't a big deal when it first came out. And, you know, they, I remember they had to have all the ads to educate people about it and stuff, and we know where that's gone from there. And I feel like when it comes to wearables, you know, because people see... Fitbit and a Jawbone that didn't work very well, and an Apple Watch that people say isn't doing very well, kind of like they said about the first iPhone. And I and I feel like it's a similar dynamic as like me sitting in front of that computer in high school thinking big deal. But I you think, know, but there are a lot of people with incredible imaginations working really hard to come out with applications of this that we can't even begin to think of right now. You've got that exactly right. There are people smarter than you and me that are out there coming up with brilliant ideas that are going to be billion-dollar companies that will probably come public at some point in the next three to five years and hopefully at a valuation that I'll still find compelling and be able to invest in. <laughs> but regardless, the entire ecosystem of wearables and the entire concept of wearables is just being developed. We're in the first out of the first inning with the wearables revolution doesn't barely even exist yet you don't want to take a snapshot of what it looks like today and think that oh fitbit is a wearables revolution company that i've that's driving the future i do own fitbit recently i started buying it when it got crushed like it has but i don't necessarily think that fitbit is the end-all be-all for wearables it's going to be a much bigger concept than that alone and by the way you hit on something important there with the iphone and the i and the apple watch do you know that the 
uh, iPhone, uh, the supposedly unsuccessful Apple Watch sold 10 times more units in the first three months than the supposedly successful iPhone did oh, yeah. when it rolled out. Those numbers have gotten <laughs> exponentially bigger already, and that's, again, why I think eventually the wearables revolution is exponentially bigger than the smartphone revolution. Yeah, the, the Apple, the, the mindset around Apple continues to just blow my mind. And a part, of the, part of the problem is it's so big. There's so many people talking about it. You've got to find... I mean, because the reality is Apple's an amazing company. Their products are continuously successful, continuously improve, and they continue to come out with new great products. But that storyline gets boring, so people have to find... I think, you know, you have to get more... Maybe it's just trying too hard. I don't know. Or it's just hard to believe that a company can keep being that successful. But all along, as I've been hearing all of the, the critiques of the Apple Watch, I mean, any kind of first iteration of something, you can expect to have bugs and not be overly impressive. I remember I watched the Apple Keynote when... Tim Cook was talking about the Apple Watch, and it didn't sound that amazing, to be honest. But, again, neither did the, the first iPhone when it came out, and I'm confident that they have a lot more in store Well, um, And again, come. you look back on that first iPhone, and the most thing you were doing that was different was going on a web browser. Yeah, it didn't, the it apps didn't even have themselves GPS. didn't exist, you know. The, the App Store didn't come out until like 2009, two years after the iPhone had come out. And finally there were there was enough critical mass of apps for the iPhone that you could create an entire ecosystem around it well right. that's probably the same sort of thing that you're going to have with the Apple Watch we don't know what apps people are developing yet and we just don't know exactly how many features they'll be able to leverage on the Apple Watch cuz it's the first version i mean this is iPhone 1 right. it, iPhone right. 1 was a brick and it was heavy and it was ugly and it didn't have any apps well Smart the the first Apple Watch, which by the way I have and I love, I use it uh, a lot, and I think it's pretty terrific already. But it's nothing compared to what it's going to be in three years when sure. I've got a projector screen doing <laughs> HD streaming on from Netflix off of my wrist onto a wall. Right, right. Well, Cody, I could selfishly sit here for a really long time and continue to pepper you with the questions, and I'm sure. Well, I mean, regarding specific companies and, and trends and stuff like that, but I want to respect your time, and uh, that'll just be some fodder for the future, I hope. But, um, Brian, Cody, it's a great interview. You do a great job, and uh, I'd be happy to come back anytime, even start doing this like at least maybe once a month and having these interviews with you. It's interesting ways to get my own brain stimulated. And by the way, you need to be publishing this your podcasts on SoundCloud, which then enables you to embed them in a pod in, in an actual scuttle on Scudify, so that all of your listeners can listen to and watch and hear your uh, your podcasts on Scuttles, because you've got a huge following on Scudify, and they'd love to hear this. So I'll work, I'll help you get that set up today if you got any questions on it. Yeah, well, I, I appreciate that, and. Um... It just, you know, Cody, you are an investing mentor to many and just an overall great guy. So we appreciate your work at Scudify, at Trading with Cody, and Market Watch. And for our listeners, don't forget to say hi to Cody over at Scudify.com, as he just mentioned. All right, that's it for another Cody Underground, the podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Find me on iTunes. Find all my trades and latest positions at tradingwithcody.com and on the Trading with Cody apps for iPhone and Android. And download the Scudify app. Find me on there. Uh, it's the best social networking app uh, for investors and traders that uh, you'll ever come across. Thanks.
what he doing to his artists and about the way he living. Take a hit, make a hit, keep a tunnel vision. Sign a deal with the feds, go to music prison. Who will believe you a prophet when you enjoy the music? Sells advertisements and profits. Get a clue, yo, do I blew your mind from QU to Soho, Cody Willow, New Mexico.